In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food. No meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and, I, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you, and stand up, for I've been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. God, our Father, we thank you for the scriptures which testify to you, which you have given to us that we might know who you are and what you're doing in the world. And uh, some are easy to understand, some are difficult. As we come to another difficult text, to pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and give us understanding, uh, that you would speak to us today, that your spirit would move among us. 
and that we would see you in the Lord Jesus Christ in all your glory. Uh, be with us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yes, we are in mourning. Um, the news is dominated by uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine on Thursday. Um, Thursday seems a long time ago. Um, so much has happened since then. Um, now, uh, Putin himself didn't invade Ukraine. He, he didn't march in uh, himself, but uh, Putin is Russia. And uh, he has spent many years using the democratic process to become prime minister and then president, all while dismantling that democratic process behind him. So now he is alone at the top, and has been for 20 years. He is the Tsar. And he is angry and resentful. Uh, he is angry that the West won the Cold War. He is angry and resentful that uh, most of the nations of Eastern Europe are now members of NATO. Uh, he's described the breakup of the Soviet Union as the greatest uh, catastrophe of the 20th century. Uh, and he disputes that Ukraine should be a distinct nation with its own land and language. And in his mind, it belongs with the Russian people, land and language. He is out to avenge the lost honor of Russia. He is out to restore Russia as a grand empire with himself as a Tsar. And so what we see is a great geopolitical drama being played out, which involves not just Ukraine, but also Western Europe and uh, the Western world. Now, the Swiss pastor theologian Karl Barth famously said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. So invite us all to seek to understand world events through the lens of scripture, and not the other way around, to understand scripture through the lens of world events. Now, as for me, I've been uh, immersed in the book of Daniel, so I'm following Putin's actions against Ukraine through the lens of the book of Daniel. And in Daniel's second vision in chapter eight, which we looked at two weeks ago, uh, Daniel saw a two-horned ram charging from east to west, and then a single-horned goat charging from west to east towards the ram. And we read that the goat charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. So why was the goat so enraged at the ram? Well, it was vengeance and revenge, just like Putin. The ram was the Persian Empire, which under Darius and Xerxes had twice uh, invaded Greece, seeking to bring it within its empire. And the goat was the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great, 150 years later, and Alexander had a long memory and he invaded the Persian Empire to avenge those earlier attacks a century and a half before. And Vladimir Putin has a long memory. He's been stewing for a long time. Now the Berlin Wall fell the same year that the World Wide Web was created, and that was forever ago. And uh, um, 
But I'm sure as uh, Russian forces have been advancing on Kyiv is that uh, Putin is also thinking of an event in 988, so over a thousand years ago, when his namesake, Vladimir, ruler of the Rus people, converted to Christianity. And that uh, was not a purely religious decision. Geopolitics were involved and uh, also a hand in marriage. Um, and then Vladimir led his people in a mass baptism in the Dnieper River in the middle of Kyiv. And thus was born the Russian Orthodox Church. And that was a major event in the formation of Russian identity. Now, Vladimir, uh, who was a warrior rather than a particularly saintly man, was nevertheless canonized as Saint Vladimir, and he's one of the patron saints of both Russia and Ukraine. And it so happens that the man leading the resistance against Vladimir Putin shares the same name. It's Vladimir Zelensky, president of Ukraine. So it's two Vladimirs going at each other. Um, and uh, one seeking to expand empire, one seeking to resist empire. Now, Old Testament Israel had been on the receiving end of empire. The northern kingdom of Israel became a vassal too and was then swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire, which also took most of Judah. And then what was left of Judah became a vassal to the Babylonian Empire and was eventually swallowed up by it. And that was even mightier empire. And there are more empires coming, Persia and Greece. And these four visions that Daniel has given in the second half of the book concern these coming empires and what they mean for God's people. And how can God's people resist these empires? And today we come to Daniel's fourth and final vision in chapters 10 through 12. It is by far the longest, and it comprises a lengthy introduction in chapter 10, a, the vision itself in chapter 11, and then an epilogue in chapter 12. And we'll take those in three separate weeks. So, today looking at the introduction to the message of the vision. And Daniel is given this vision in the third year of Cyrus, the ruler of the rapidly expanding Persian Empire. So the year is 536 BC, three years after the Persians captured Babylon. And Cyrus has issued his decree allowing the Jews to go home to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But Daniel, who's an old man by now, has stayed in Babylon. And for this vision, he's actually not in Babylon, he's to the east of Babylon on the bank of the river Tigris, the other great river of Mesopotamia. And a word is revealed to Daniel. The word is true, and it was a great struggle. Um, NIV has it that it was about a great war. Uh, well, the revelation is about a great conflict, as we'll see in chapter 11 next week. But it was also a great struggle for Daniel himself to understand the message of the revelation or to get into a place where he could even hear the revelation. And much of this chapter is about Daniel's struggle to be ready to receive the word. And as I said two weeks ago, uh, receiving these four visions in chapters seven through 12 has been a pretty traumatic experience for Daniel. He's often overcome and in anguish and overwhelmed. Now, Daniel has been in mourning for three weeks, including Passover, which would normally be a festive time. He's given up fine food and wine and has suspended his personal grooming, 
sounds a little bit like Lent, which begins this week on Ash Wednesday. And later in the chapter, we will learn that he has set his mind to gain understanding and to humble himself before God. And 10 days after Passover, Daniel receives a vision. And before he's told the actual message of the vision, he has three encounters with heavenly beings. Uh, these are indicated in ESV by the word behold, which uh, unfortunately the NIV lacks. And it's not at all clear how many heavenly creatures he sees, how many, nor whom he sees, because none of them is identified. And during these encounters, Daniel spends much of his time, time face down on the ground, trembling. Well, in his first encounter in verses five through nine, Daniel sees a man dressed in linen. But this is no ordinary human. His appearance is dazzlingly bright. So some think this is an angel, others that he is so dazzling that this must be God himself. And the imagery is similar to Ezekiel's vision of, quote, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And that vision left Ezekiel flat on his face. And you women may recognize the language here for it's used to describe John's vision of the risen Lord Jesus standing among the lampstands in Revelation chapter one. And that vision left John prostrate as though dead. You see, it's an awesome thing to come face to face with the holy as to Ezekiel, Daniel, and John to encounter God. As also did Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of them ended up flat on the floor. And Rudolf Otto in his classic book, The Idea of the Holy, described the holy as mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Now that's a Latin phrase that means a mystery that both uh, causes one to tremble, invokes trembling, uh, but also fascinates. God is mysterious because he is not like us. He is altogether other. He is holy. And the revelation of himself causes us to tremble because of that great gulf between us. But we're also fascinated and drawn to him. And as we said to, it, together in our call to worship, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, which in scripture usually means falling on your knees, face to the ground in worship. This was true of Moses. When God revealed himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, Moses immediately bowed to the ground and worshiped. He was in awe of such a God. And then he asked the Lord to go with them. Although or because this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. So you realize there's a great gulf between us and you, God. But please take us as your people. It's our only hope. Now this mystery that both terrifies and fascinates is beautifully depicted in the classic children's book, The Wind in the Willows, um, where mole and rat encounter an august presence. And suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy, but it was an awe that smote and held him 
and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them, and still the light grew and grew. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, O oh mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals crouching to the earth bowed their heads and did worship. They worshiped in the presence of that august being, august presence. August is just a word meaning worthy of worship. Now Daniel's friends didn't see the vision. They were so terrified that they ran away and hid. But Daniel saw this great vision and he was undone. It took his strength away. And then the dazzling one spoke and Daniel fell into a deep sleep a supernaturally induced state, so more like a trance, in which he was receptive to the vision. Daniel's second encounter, verses 10 through 15, begins with a touch, the first of three touches he will receive. And the hand lifts him up to his hands and his knees, but he's shaking like a leaf. Assured that he is highly esteemed, he is told to stand upright in readiness for the message but still he's trembling. And so the heavenly messenger says, do not be afraid. And tells him that Daniel's words were heard in heaven as soon as he started praying, 21 days earlier, just like in chapter nine. And this heavenly messenger has been sent in response, and this suggests that perhaps this is Gabriel, the messenger of chapters eight and nine. But then we read a surprising thing. He has been delayed. For 21 days, his way has been blocked by the prince of the Persian kingdom, and he was detained with the king of Persia. And that standoff lasted until Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. But now he is here, and he will tell Daniel what will happen to his people in the future. But Daniel is back on the ground, speechless. Daniel's third encounter is with one who looked like a man in verses 16 through 19. He receives a second touch, this time on his lips so that he can speak, but all he can say is how weak he is as a result of the vision. And then he receives a third touch to strengthen him and is again told, do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed. Peace to you, be strong, be strong. His strength returns, and now at last Daniel is ready to receive the message, which we'll get in chapter 11. Well, what a great struggle it has been to get Daniel to this point, where he is ready to be told what will happen to his people in the future. Now, the messenger angel will tell Daniel what will happen, what is written in this book of truth, this reliable document, but he is in a hurry. He needs to get back to the fight against the Prince of Persia, whom he knows will soon be joined by the Prince of Greece, and only Michael, your prince, the Prince of Israel, has come to his aid, which is what has allowed him to come 
after this delay of 21 days, come with this message for Daniel. Well, that's our text. So what are we to make of these princes of Persia, Greece, and Israel? Well, on one side are the prince of Persia and later the prince of Greece. On the other side is Michael, prince of Israel, and this heavenly messenger who has been sent to Daniel, but had been blocked for three weeks. Now, the vision in chapter 11 will be about future kings of Persia and then the kingdom of Greece and a mighty king who is Alexander the Great, followed by a dizzying list sequence of kings of the north and kings of the south, who are all successors to Alexander's Greek kingdom. And that vision will cover 350 years of geopolitical history. But what we're being told here in this chapter in preparation for that vision is that behind the scenes, there is a cosmic conflict. This isn't simply a matter of empires on earth. The princes of Persia, Greece, and Israel are all supernatural beings. In a sense, they are guardian angels of these earthly powers. Now, this is apocalyptic literature. It's a revelation or uncovering, that's what apocalyptic means, an uncovering of things that are not perceptible on the earthbound stage. An apocalyptic takes us behind the scenes to see unseen realities, that is, that are unseen to the human eye. Now, occasionally we get to go behind the scenes. Uh, if you stay long enough uh, after watching a movie, uh, long enough for the movie credits, the list of actors is followed by a very long list of those who worked behind the scenes so that these actors could appear in front of the camera and be on the screen. Then we have a talented and dedicated tech crew back there working behind the scenes to produce our live stream service uh, each week. Now sometimes we're advised not to go behind the scenes, uh, such as to see how sausages are made. Um, <laughs> But once a year, there is a sausage-making party here in uh, Fellowship Hall prior to ministry fair, if ever you're curious. Um, and then sometimes going, uh, seeing behind the scenes is uh, anticlimactic. This was true when Toto pulled back that curtain to reveal the Wizard of Oz. Um, but what do we learn as we go behind the scenes uh, about these princes of nations what does the Bible have to say about nations? What is the origin of peoples and nations, languages and lands? Well, the Lord scattered humanity at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and he divided them into 70 peoples that are listed in the table of nations, which is Genesis chapter 10. And in the visible earthbound world, each of these 70 had its clans, its language, its land and its people. And in the unseen realm, God assigned these peoples to heavenly beings, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32. For the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. So the Lord allocated the 70 peoples to the sons of God. 
Who are these? Well, these are members of his heavenly court. They're supernatural beings, and to them he has handed the 70 nations. But these supernatural beings deceive their earthly nations into worshiping false gods and living disordered lives. And God allows them to go their own way to deceive nations. So they live in uh, um, disordered ways. But what God did is he took for himself Israel. Now Israel is not even mentioned in the table of nations. It doesn't exist at that point. It's not one of the 70. But the Lord started a new people, beginning with one person, Abraham. So he reached into those 70 nations and he took out one individual who was no different than any of the other individuals. He was a moon worshiper. He too was uh, living a disordered life, uh, worshiping uh, false deities, but God took him. And it's a surprising choice because his wife was old and barren. Nevertheless, God said that out of this barrenness, he would build a new people, his people, who would be over against those 70 nations, all the other peoples. And through this people, he would ultimately bless all those other people. And the Lord revealed himself to Israel and he gave them the gift of order over against these 70 nations who were living in disorder. He gave them the gift of order in time with the Sabbath. He gave them the gift of order in space with the tabernacle and then with the, the temple and the city and the land of Israel. And he gave them the gift of order in ethics with his commandments, his Torah. So the Israelites were to live differently from the disordered lives of the 70 nations, the Gentiles. They were to live in loyalty to Yahweh, the one true God. They were to live their lives oriented onto God, the true God. Meanwhile, the other nations were going their own way under the influence of these uh, spiritual forces, powers. And some of the spiritual princes roused their earthly rulers to empire building. And the first empire builder is Nimrod, who is uh, talked of in the table of nations there in Genesis 10. And then the princes of Persia and the prince of Greece are the supernatural forces behind the empire building of the Persian and Greek kings. So there's a connection between some heavenly power, some supernatural power, and the kings on earth, these mighty rulers. And God's people have been swallowed up by empire. But on their side, in the cosmic realm, they have Michael. Now, this may all sound very strange to us, living in the post-Enlightenment West. But you women are immersed in the book of Revelation. And this also is apocalyptic literature. Now, it is fortuitous that we are going through Daniel and Revelation at the same time. These, the two major apocalyptic works in scripture. And in Revelation, the veil is pulled back for John so that he can see what is going on beyond the earth. And he sees two additional realms. He sees the heaven above and the abyss below. And in heaven above, he sees God enthroned in the midst of his heavenly court 
surrounded by the four cherubim, the 24 elders, the seven angels of the presence, and countless other angels. He is the one true God. He is worthy to receive worship, for he has created all things. And John sees a cosmic battle. He sees a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns that seeks to devour the offspring of the woman. But the child was snatched up to heaven, leaving the dragon frustrated, leaving him resentful. In Revelation 12, then we read, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And the dragon pursued the woman, but she is whisked away from his grasp. And now seriously enraged, the dragon went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who faithfully followed the lamb, those who faithfully followed Jesus. And God allows this. The dragon gives his power, his throne, and his great authority to the beast, and the false prophet orchestrates the worship of the beast. But the beast is not worthy of worship though he seems to have all of the power. Now, when I preached through Revelation uh, 20 years ago, I called the series The Seen and the Unseen. In the seen world, the Christians are small communities within the vast, all-powerful Roman Empire. But Revelation pulls back the veil to show them the unseen realm behind the scenes. There is this cosmic conflict between heaven and the abyss over the earth. Both heaven and the abyss have a colony on earth. And the churches are an outpost of heaven. The Christians are given this peak behind the scenes so they can be encouraged to persevere in loyal devotion to the lamb who they follow. And so that they can recognize that the claims of the beast and the false prophet are indeed false. It is resistance literature to enable them to resist the false claims of the beast and false prophet. John saw the dragon and his angels hurled out of heaven down to earth. And there are various passages in scripture that show that some heavenly beings have rebelled against God. This includes Satan himself. It includes many angels. It includes the sons of God to whom the nations were assigned, who have been leading those nations astray. And in the New Testament, we are shown behind the scenes what God has done with them. So in 2 Peter 2, we read that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And again in Jude, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now the hell into which they have been cast is the realm Tartarus the realm of the disobedient angels pending their final judgment. And these fallen angels, we might more normally call demons. 
But again, going behind the scenes, we are told that God in Christ has defeated all of these evil powers. In Colossians 2, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And God has exalted the risen Lord Jesus high above every spiritual power and seated them at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, all of these powers and principalities have a beginning and they have an end. They have a beginning, they were created. In the text that, that uh, Eugene took us through in January, in him, that is in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. These powers are not eternal. Their creative power has gone wrong. And then at the end, Christ will destroy all dominion, authority, and power. 1 Corinthians 15. By contrast, Christ has no beginning and has no end. He is the incarnate, eternal God. And therefore, he is worthy. Now, how has Christ triumphed? Well, the Lion of Judah has conquered, but not by using the power of a lion. See, it's the devil that uses the power of a lion. He prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Because these principalities and powers devour people. The lion is conquered by being the slain lamb. He is conquered despite being slain by the forces of evil. No, he is conquered by being slain by the forces of evil. Now, C.S. Lewis imaginatively portrays this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan allows himself to be tied to the stone table by the evil forces of the White Witch, who has spread an eternal winter over the land. And then she kills him, and all looks lost. Evil has won. Winter is endless. But the next morning, Susan and Lucy, having gone to the table and seen Aslan bound there, they then turn their backs and hear a great crack, turn around and find the stone table empty and cracked in half. Aslan soon appears to them and explains, quote, then a willing victim who had committed when a willing victim who has committed no treason was killed in a traitor's dead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And then as Jesus died on the cross and it looked as though evil had triumphed, he entrusted himself to a God and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew that he was dying an innocent man. And he knew that his father saw him. He had refused to respond with raw power. Instead, he had prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Instead, he had promised the penitent rebel at his side, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And now God invites all to come and find forgiveness. 
Both Israel and the nations need deliverance from the forces of evil. Because God's people had fallen into evil. And the nations have lived in evil from the start. And how are they delivered? They're delivered by, from evil into the kingdom of God by the gospel. As you men have been studying in the book of, Revel, of Romans, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, why might Paul be ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel seems weak. At its heart is not a roaring lion with tremendous power and strength, but its heart is a slain lamb. And the gospel is a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But it is the power of God unto salvation. And Paul is so convinced of the power of the gospel that he wants to go to Spain to proclaim this gospel where it has not yet been heard. And he wants the assistance of the Roman churches in this endeavor. And through the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, God is building a new kingdom, a great kingdom. But it's not built the way a human empire is built, with power. The way the Persians built their empire, the Greeks, the Romans, Putin. It's not built by running over people, peoples and nations. It's a kingdom built on love, grace, peace, reconciliation. And into it is being drawn a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language to become one new family. Its citizens refuse to respond to evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we read the news about Ukraine and seek to understand the news in the light of scripture, what do we see behind the scenes? Well, we see that there is evil. There is evil in the world. Uh, it's not sort of a kumbaya moment, can't we all just learn to get along together? There are demonic forces. There are supernatural beings that have gone wrong and rebelled against God. There is injustice. There is the wrong use of power. There is empire building. But we see also that these powers and principalities have been defeated in Christ, that God, Christ has triumphed over them. The back of evil is broken, though evil continues to persist. Secondly, we see the glory of Christ. That Christ has triumphed by being the slain lamb, by going into the very jaws of death and of evil and triumphing over evil. And we see the power of the gospel to set people free. Then we see that there is this worldwide family that God is forming, that he began with Abraham of building a new nation in the midst of all these 70 nations that were led astray and living disordered lives. And that we as followers of Jesus are sort of the inheritors of that promise that God put in place in Genesis 12 to build a new family. 
It's a worldwide family drawn from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. It's to include Russians and Ukrainians. It's to include Indians and Pakistanis. It's to include all those peoples who formerly are at enmity with one another, Jews and Gentiles, united together. And then we have opportunities for overcoming evil. Daniel and Revelation are both resistance books. To resist the, the forces of evil, to resist the claims of empire, to resist the beast in its various manifestations. Resist the evil by, not, by overcoming evil, not with evil, but by overcoming evil with good. We can do that, we can pray. Pray for those in Ukraine. Pray for the Christians in Ukraine. And there's a vibrant church in Ukraine. And pray that they would remain faithful through this hardship. And scripture tells us to pay particular concern for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, the people that get run over by power, that get run over by empire. We've heard from Jim Ross with his ministry, the very least, the very last. That's what he's doing, caring for the very last of people. Uh, in our immediate environment, we've now got Afghan refugees who are arriving uh, in considerable numbers who have nothing. And we reach out to them, seeking to do good uh, in most of their great pain and suffering. So we're seeking every opportunity to overcome evil with good and thereby resist. So we see in this chapter there are these supernatural forces that lie behind the machinations of worldly empires. But also that we have the privilege of being God's agents at work to respond to all of that evil with good as we follow in the footsteps of our slain but risen lamb. And one of the ways we resist um, is by taking communion together and reminding ourselves who it is that we follow and what our life is based upon. Now I invite the uh, choir to come up. They're gonna assist in this. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together for a Passover meal to celebrate liberation from bondage to Egypt and to the Pharaoh who insisted that he was God manifest on earth and who held God's people in captivity. Um, his was a brutal uh, brutal empire. But then God took these elements, Christ took these elements and he gave them new meaning. He redefined them around himself that the bread no longer represented the hasty departure from Egypt. The cup no longer represented the redemption from Egypt. But now what was happening in and through his own body, that the bread would be his body given. The cup was his blood shed for his people. And he took the bread and he broke it 
and he gave thanks. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to this, your table, to eat and drink these, your gifts. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he uh, who knew no sin, who faithfully uh, was obedient to you in all things, delighted in doing your will, went right into the heart of evil and submitted himself um, and was put to death by the forces of evil, this unholy collaboration of Jew and Gentile together, and died as the one sinless person who'd been faithful to the end. We thank you that you have vindicated him in resurrection as had to happen. But even more so, we thank you that you have then extended forgiveness to those who did this, to those who rebelled against you, even to us. Thank you for your invitation to come into your kingdom of love, of peace, of joy. To come to the one who is the one who is truly worthy of worship. Father, we ascribe to you all the honor for you are worthy. And we ascribe to the Lord Jesus all the honor for he is worthy as creator, but also as redeemer. Father, as we uh, take this bread and eat the bread and drink the cup, may we do so in faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith that through his death in our place, we have entered into your kingdom and are following your way. And may you give us the grace to overcome evil with good. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.